0: Several years ago, uh, my main hobby was keeping fish in aquariums, and one of the fish keeping groups that I was part of met for a while in the back banquet room of a bar. And I really struggled with what people might think if I attended those, medi- if I attended those meetings and they saw me leaving the bar. Should I have let that fear be an obstacle to spending time with those unsaved people and pointing them to Jesus? Around the same time as the fish hobby, I was doing a Bible study at a retirement home. One dear lady, and as a part of the Bible study, was telling me a story about a dream she had had in which she was convinced her son would be saved soon a few weeks before her son became a Christian. In that moment, I wasn't sure how to respond. Should I argue with her about the details of her dream, her experience, or should I rejoice with her that her son was now a believer in Christ? I think Christians from churches like ours tend to... Potentially have a lot of arguments about those uh, two examples. The what will other Christians think of me? And the how do I respond to an experience I don't understand? How does it fit in with, with the way I think about the world? Sometimes we have these arguments within our minds. Sometimes we have them with people around us. Should we consider what's right? I think we should, yes. But not in a way that fears other people's opinions. Should we try to understand what the Bible says? Yes, but the reality is we're never going to understand every last aspect of it. We need to recognize that God sometimes works in surprising ways that we haven't experienced. Even today, we hear stories about many people trusting Christ in places like India or China. We think, well, it sure would be nice if we saw these mass turnings to God that we see in some of these other places. But I think sometimes we wonder if it really would. We talk about the idea of revival or we talk about... Um, you're just like uh, there's a song that we sing sometimes that talks about we long to see your churches is full right um, all of those sorts of ideas why doesn't the wide scale turning to God happen as often in our specific context there could be a lot of reasons but perhaps one reason is that sometimes or rather when we get distracted uh, by arguing about God's work, instead of doing God's work, God works less through us. When we get distracted by arguing about God's work instead of doing God's work, God works less through us. In our passage today, Jesus does an amazing miracle. Rather than glorify God, several of the scribes start thinking, how does this fit into my theology? A little later, Jesus is eating with sinful people. The religious leaders look down on him and question Jesus' actions and motives, And then throughout the next few chapters, we're going to see a number of conflicts between the religious leaders and Jesus over the question of his authority. Is he able to forgive sins? Can he associate with sinners? Must he follow the Sabbath the way that the Pharisees do? By what power does he cast out demons? Does he really have power over life and death? In this first section, though, that we're going to look at today, chapter 2 and the first few verses of chapter 3, I think the passage is teaching us this. Follow Jesus, don't argue with or about him. Jesus wasn't worried about whether the religious leaders would approve of who he associated with. He exercised his authority in miracles to demonstrate that he was, in fact, God, though he spoke of himself as the Son of Man. He spent time with people who were in need of a Savior, and he knew their need, and rather, they also knew their need. He reminded his hearers that God instituted various traditions as reminders for God's people, not to enslave God's people to human traditions. Let's look at each of these sins, and I especially want us to notice the different responses of each group to Jesus. The first is verses 1 through 12. At his house, Jesus forgives and heals a paralyzed man to show his authority as God. He says in verse 1, when he came back to Capernaum, it was heard that he was at home. The crowds gathered and left no room. This is a familiar story. If you grew up in church, you probably heard it in Sunday school. The four friends are good friends because they bring their their friend to Jesus, right? So he can get better. But I think the way that that story is told in Sunday school sometimes misses some of the really important, important points of what's going on in this story. So remember what we talked about previously? There is this publicizing of Jesus' miracles to the extent that he's so popular that there's no room for people to get to Jesus. So it's not... Oh, wow! Well, look, like the house was really small, so they couldn't get in. It's this, this huge crowd is pressing in on Jesus because, like we saw before, the man, instead of going and being a witness according to the law, as Jesus told him to do, he goes and tells this story about Jesus' miracle. All the other people who see Jesus do miracles. They're just talking about the miracles and talking about the miracles, and there's this frenzy among the crowds. We want to see another miracle. The friends are like, we can't get in. We're going to go up on the roof. We're going to dig a hole in the roof, and we're going to get in there. Think about what that would have been like. Stuff starts to fall down. It's not like it would have been removing a shingle roof or a steel roof or something like that, but there would have been a process involved. It wasn't just one layer because it had to be a roof that was strong enough for people to walk through. So they're doing whatever to dig into the roof, and suddenly there's this opening, and everybody's looking up. What's going on? And these four men, we know from one of the other Gospels, tie their coats together and they lower the man down so that he can be right there next to Jesus because there's no other room. What does Jesus note about these men? Jesus remarks on their faith that works. Now we talk about that in the book of James. Faith without works is dead. If their faith was, I believe God can heal him, so we're just going to sit here and wait. Hopefully Jesus will show up. They took him to Jesus because they're like, Jesus, look at him. We want you to help him. Jesus, seeing their faith, said, get up and walk. But that's not what it says next, is it? He says to them, to the man, your sins are forgiven. Why does Jesus say your sins are forgiven instead of doing the miracle that they were all expecting? Because in this instance he is taking the opportunity to show his authority as God. That's going to become clear again in a moment, but he's showing that he is God because only God has the power to forgive sins. The passage doesn't argue with that, the passage only argues with the scribes' assumption that he is not God. Right? Son, your sins are forgiven. Now the friends came there expecting that Jesus was going to heal the man. But what Jesus does is actually what he needed more. As much as it would be wonderful if he could get up and walk, as much as it's wonderful as when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead in a later point, this man was going to get old and not be able to walk good again, right? Lazarus was going to die eventually, right? The miracles that Jesus performed were remarkable and immediate and all of those sorts of things, but they didn't remove the curse of sin. What this man needed was his sin being dealt with. Jesus says, "I forgive your sins. Your sins are forgiven." Because the man that had leprosy didn't testify to the scribes and Pharisees of who Jesus was, Jesus took this opportunity to testify them directly and to claim authority as God. The scribes question But they don't say it out loud. They're just thinking this in their hearts, right? So when Jesus says, hey, why are you guys thinking this? That should have been their second clue. This is God. He said, your sins are forgiven with authority. And he knew what you were thinking. Now we could make the case. Well, he could probably know what they were thinking because this is the way that they behaved. And we could explain it away, right? But that's not the point, right? This is on parallel with what we see in John One. Hey, Nathaniel, I saw you under the tree a mile away before you ever came and saw me. What's Nathaniel's response, my Lord and my God? right? Son, your sins are forgiven. He can't do that. He's not God. Yes, I can. but let's just let's just play this scenario out, which is easier. Get up and walk or your sins are forgiven. You can't do either one of them because you're just a man. I can do both. But to show you I can do both, I'm going to do both. Get up and walk. Jesus shows his authority to forgive sins by healing the man as well. Get up, pick up your pallet and go home. Think about what that would have been like for that man. Every day <coughs> he's laying on this bed his somebody, family, friends, whoever, picking him up, carrying him out to the marketplace, carrying him out to the temple courtyard, like the outside of the temple, somewhere that he can beg for money. And then somebody has to carry him back home. Every day, this is probably the way that he was surviving. Jesus says, you pick up your pallet, and you go home. He doesn't have to keep begging to survive. He doesn't have to have other people carrying him around because there's nothing he can do for himself. He finally has the ability to take care of himself and to live a somewhat normal life. That would have been a huge moment for him. But as marvelous and amazing as that was, the more important point was he encountered the one who has the authority to forgive sins, not just the authority to take away physical suffering and consequences of sin. He gets up, he picks up the pallet, and he went out in the sight of everyone. The leper goes and publicizes Jesus when Jesus said, hey, go do this other thing. This man does exactly what Jesus tells him to do. What's the response of the crowd? It is, though they don't fully understand it, though they are fickle, all those sorts of things, it is the right response. A remarkable thing has occurred. Praise God. Kind of like what happens in the book of Acts. When the lame man is made to walk, the people are rejoicing and saying, God has done an amazing thing. Can there be any question about what has taken place? Can there be any question about the authority that is required in order to make it take place? No. But this only contributes to the resentment of the religious leaders toward Jesus. Second scene starts in verse 13. The scribes question Jesus' words and actions. Before we get there, the scribes question Jesus' words and actions, but the crowds had a right response, and the man himself. Rejoicing in God's amazing work and doing what Jesus had said. So I think the question from this first story is, when you see God's work, do you rejoice? Or is your default response to explain it away or to overanalyze it? Again, if somebody says, I believe in Jesus because I felt a particular way one day. I think the Bible would say there's got to be something a little more substantial than that to, be, to have a credible profession of faith, right? But if somebody says something like this remarkable thing that happened that I can't explain led me to the Bible and I encountered who Jesus was and I trusted in him, Do we say, well, that person can't be a believer because this thing happened and then the thing that we would expect happened, right? The reality is God leads people in a variety of ways to the point of trusting in Jesus, right? And sometimes our response is to get hung up on the details of it and say, well, you didn't use this word that I thought you should use when you described your trusting in Jesus. So I don't know if you're really a Christian. Or this way that you described it, I don't really think that fits into the way that I think the world works. So I, I, don't, I, I don't believe it, right? What's the response to the crowd? The people who are, I think, condemned in this story are the ones who are trying to like systematize it And the people who are praising the story are the people who accept it at face value for what it is. I'm not saying be naive, right? Somebody says, oh, I encountered Jesus. And then there's no evidence of that. We don't just blindly accept it indefinitely, right? But I think our initial response should be to rejoice at God's work instead of to explain why that couldn't possibly be God's work because it didn't happen in the way that we would have done it or in the way that we would expect or all the things don't line up exactly the way that we would think about them. The next story, Jesus goes out, verse 13, by the seashore. Jesus teaches and calls even sinners to follow him. And this is important, it's linked with the previous one because he has the power to forgive their sin, right? Jesus teaches by the seashore. The crowds are coming out to him. He's teaching them. He goes by a man named Levi. He sees Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. He says, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. <clears throat> Levi, also called Matthew, author of the Gospel of Matthew, was a tax collector. What do we know about tax collectors? Upstanding pillars of the community, right? No, they were liars and cheats, friends of the Romans. They were seen as traitors to their own people. Um, it's kind of like if um, if the government made a rule that you are going to have to uh, donate. Half of whatever you grew in your garden, your backyard, and your neighbor is the one who comes and takes it and gives it to the the government. How are you going to feel about that neighbor? Is he your best friend? Do you trust him? No. And then on top of that, let's say that he was supposed to take half and he takes two thirds and he keeps the other little bit for himself. Why do I say something like that? Because the story of Zacchaeus. What do you say? He said, I was cheating people this whole time. That was the reputation that tax collectors had. When he says sinners, it's kind of a general term, but these are people who are liars. These are people who are potentially committing immorality. These are people who are doing all sorts of various sins. We're going to see that here in just a moment. I'm setting the scene for that. But Jesus goes, calls this man who is living the good life, as much as people didn't like him, he's getting money, he's doing well for himself, right? Right? And Jesus says, follow me. And he leaves it and he comes with Jesus. He going to be making money following Jesus? No. Is he going to be having the opportunity to do all these things the way that he has been doing? He had to have some understanding of the fact that if he left this, he wasn't coming back to it. He gets up and he follows Jesus. The other gospels add a few more details, but the basic idea is he then says, hey, I am now following Jesus, and I want all my friends to meet Jesus. So he throws a party at his house. Hey, come over, meet Jesus. What's the response of the scribes of the Pharisees? Note the phrase at the end of verse 15. There were many of them, and they were following him. Who's the them? The tax collectors and sinners. Jesus forgives sins and heals the man who's paralyzed, and they want to explain it away. Jesus spends time with people who want to spend time with him and want to follow after him, and they say, Should he really be over there? Should he be spending time with those sorts of people? Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors? and sinners what's Jesus' response people who are well don't need a doctor you think you're well I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners and you think you're righteous now the reality was they weren't righteous and they weren't well which Jesus makes clear on a number of other points but that's how they thought about themselves and Jesus said look These people know that they need me. They're liars, they're cheats, they're adulterers, they're wrongdoers, they're sinners, and they know that they're sinners. But you know what? They have the humility to acknowledge that they're sinners and be willing to follow me. You won't admit that you're sinners, you think that everything is right, and you are saying I shouldn't spend time with them, but you don't want me to spend time with you. Levi, a sinner, a cheat, a despised man, follows Jesus right away. He invites his fellow sinners to meet Jesus, and many of them do. Rather than rejoicing that sinners follow Jesus, the scribes question Jesus and seek to undermine his ministry. Do you and I seek out sinners knowing Jesus can forgive them? Or do we wonder... If I spend time with sinners, am I just going to get all caught up in the sin that they're doing? There's wisdom in this, right? If you have a problem with drinking, you probably shouldn't go hang out with your friends that you spend a lot of time with at the bar and try to witness to them there. But have them over to your house, try to do a Bible study with them, spend time with them. Sometimes people have this attitude like, well, here are all the people I used to spend time with, now I trust Jesus, I'm never going to talk to those people again. There's a huge opportunity there, potentially, and it could be that pretty quickly they're not going to want to spend time with you, but that's not on you, that's on them, right? My point is to say, sometimes we have this attitude, well, if you want to be a part of the church, leave everybody away that's not part of the church people, and we don't really want them here. We wouldn't say that, but sometimes that's what we think deep down in our hearts, If we have somebody come in who doesn't dress in a particular way or talk in a particular way or think about the world in a particular way, we're not really sure if we want them with us. We struggle with this with our neighbors, right? We probably all have neighbors who swear and do things that we don't like and, and don't spend time seeking after God. And from a human perspective, they might be nice people, like they would have your back and they'll help you out and all those sorts of things. But we still sometimes have this temptation to kind of hold them at arm's length because they're kind of like, well, what if they swear in front of my kids? And what if they, you know, tell a dirty joke? And what if, like all of these what ifs, right? We're having this conversation on the way to church this morning about brayden was talking about like is there something you could do as a job and we're kind of like well you know one of the things you have to work through in a work environment is that you're going to encounter things that um maybe we're not sure we're ready for you to encounter all the time every day right um because there are people who basically their life is oriented around partying and immorality and like everything that that's like the the sum total of their life so that's what they talk about But at some point, you know, maybe the right time isn't when you're 12 or 13, but maybe the right time is when you're 15 or 16. And I think parents who have homeschooled or sent their kids to Christian school, we have sort of this, like we can protect our kids from all the bad things out in the world. And I'm not saying that our goal should be to flood them and get them entangled in sins because we just carelessly expose them to every last thing. However... The reality is, sooner or later, kids are going to encounter things whether we like it or not. And Braden raised the point. Well, what about the thing the kids said in the locker room the one time? Well, you know, it's Christian school. People wouldn't say things in the locker room. Right. The point is, do we limit the ministry that God wants us to have with people because we're worried that our relationship with God is going to just go off the rails because we spent an hour having them over or going and doing an activity with them or something like that. And if that's the case, then we need to figure out how, by God's grace, to strengthen our walk with God so that we're not immediately pulled over here. Now, I, I recognize the pull, right? I said that for a while I was in this fish hobby, And there's the reality that I got way too into the fish hobby, right? I had a thousand gallons of fish tanks in my house for a while because I was spending time with people who said the sum total of my joy in life is to have lots of fish tanks. And if they have five, well then if I can say I have six, then they'll accept me or like me or be impressed by me or whatever. and. The reality is, there's an aspect to my personality that tends to go all in and get carried away with something if I become interested in it, and some of you are probably like that. So you have to be aware of those tendencies, right? And you can't say, they worship this thing, so I'm going to worship this thing. Because let's be honest, there were a number of them whose families were a wreck and who were living in not great conditions. And some of it was, I'm doing this hobby to forget about that. And some of it was, I did this hobby that put me in the mess that I'm in. Right? And so, when you start to take a step back and think about that, you're like, well, that's dumb. Why would people do that with fish? Pick the hobby that you like and recognize that people get carried away with their hobbies. Right? There was a guy who got divorced from his wife. She left him in part because he had an obsession with RC planes, and he spent all his time doing that and never any time with his family. So we can get ensnared in any sort of hobby or activity or whatever that takes us away from the things we're supposed to be doing and makes our lives miserable because we start to worship whatever it is instead of God. So we should recognize that danger in that pull if we're going to connect with people doing an activity that we like. We can't get drawn into the mindset that this is the sum total of my life. But just because that danger exists doesn't mean we should never try to connect with people. Sometimes it's at work. Sometimes it's through a hobby. Sometimes it's you just happen to be talking to somebody when you stop at the store for whatever. You see the same person regularly for whatever reason. We should recognize the danger and the reality that we can't do the sins that control their lives but also recognize we're plenty good at coming up with sins even if we stay isolated away from everybody in the whole world, right? There was this big emphasis in the Middle Ages on monks and nuns being holy people, right? They weren't. There were certain sins that were harder for them to commit if they're off by themselves, but there were a whole lot of other sins they kept committing all the same because sin is a problem of the heart, not a problem of the location, right? Jesus was out ministering to sinners. And to the extent that we're going to follow Jesus, we need to be ministering to sinners. And that's going to get messy, and that's going to be uncomfortable, and that's going to potentially not feel safe or enjoyable or whatever else. But it's what God called us to do, right? The part where everything is cleaned up and neat and organized and the way it's supposed to be, that comes down the road, right? Right now we live in the part where People are sinful, and people get hurt, and stuff gets broken, and it's expensive, and someone will say something we don't like, and all of those things, and that's part of following after God and doing ministry. And I say this not just to try to make you feel guilty, because this is something that I struggle with too, right? It's easy to be comfortable, it's easy to say, I don't want to reach out to people who are different than me, who are sinful in ways that I don't enjoy being around, all of those sorts of things, these are things that we have to work through. Jesus then responds to John's disciples and the Pharisees as they question him about fasting, verses 18 to 22. John's disciples and the Pharisees fasted regularly. Uh... The Bible, the Old Testament law, commanded fasting at particular times of the year, right? Passover, for example. There was fasting associated with some of those things. Um, However, fasting every week or every few days, um, Jesus condemned the Pharisees because they would do it in this, in this way that where they would come into some, a situation and they would look all bedraggled, oh, what's going on Well, I'm fasting? And they're drawing attention to themselves. If they were fasting twice a week because they spent more time in prayer and they didn't talk to anybody about it and they didn't make a big deal about it, great, fine. But the point was, God didn't say you have to fast every two days and God definitely didn't say make a big deal about it so people will notice you doing it. And that was their pattern and their activity. Now, John's disciples were probably fasting a slightly different way. Where does John the Baptist live? Out in the desert. What's he eating? Locusts and honey. Could be out of necessity. Some days you didn't find the locusts and honey. Could be out of a, there was, um, his ministry was one that was more of like sacrifice and exclusion and isolation, all those sorts of things, not from people, but from the comforts and conveniences of life, Right? So John's disciples are fasting, the Pharisees are fasting, possibly for different reasons, maybe different situations. Their question is, hey, why are Jesus' disciples not fasting? Notice Jesus' response. When the bridegroom's here, do the people who are his, does his best man and his friends, do they fast? No, they feast because he's here. You guys aren't recognizing that the point of all of history is standing right in front of you. It's a time of rejoicing. He's right here. When he dies and he goes away, that's a time to be sorrowful. That's a time to fast. That's a time to connect with him because he's not physically present in quite the same way. But right here, while he's right in front of you, that's not the time to fast. He goes on further and he says, The thing about no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the patch pulls away. New from old and a worse tear results. No one puts new wine in old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins. The wine is lost in the skins also, but one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. Most commentators, I think they're correct, would take it in this way. Here's Jesus' teaching. Jesus' teaching is not going to fit neatly into the system of the Pharisees and it's not going to fit neatly into necessarily all the ideas that John's disciples have some of whom potentially came from the Pharisees and are now starting to learn what it means to follow God but haven't gotten the whole picture you can't say I'm going to add Jesus to my God shelf which is what happened in a lot of places around the world people would bring Christianity and the people in the place would say oh great I have three gods already let me add Jesus now I have four gods Jesus is a replace everything you've got, here's the only one kind of God, right? So when Jesus says, you need to stop thinking about it this way, he's saying, you can't take this part of what the disciples are doing and fit it into your system and way of looking at the world and expect that it's all going to work because it won't. The question for you is, Are you going to potentially abandon all of these traditions that you have felt are a necessity and come to me and follow after me? And maybe that includes some of those same things for different motives, and maybe it doesn't. Are you willing to completely reshape your worldview and approach in following God that way? And at that moment, many of them were not. The fourth scene is verses 23 through 28, and then 3, 1 through 6. Before we get into those, Jesus had authority to designate fasting or to say it wasn't the right time. He was not fasting or urging his disciples to fast simply to satisfy expectations of the Pharisees. Here's, I think, the question for us. Do you and I follow traditions merely because they are expected or the way that we've done things and judge other believers based on whether they follow your traditions or are you seeking to follow Jesus and let him be the judge of every person? And are we collectively saying, We've been doing such and such a particular way. We don't change things just for the sake of changing things, right? There are people who are basically like anything bad, anything old is bad, anything new is good, right? It's like the cell phone upgrade path mentality, right? This cell phone is old and it's not fast and I don't like it, so I'm going to throw it away and I'm get a new one because the new one is better. And while that might be true for technology, It's rarely true for the way that we do things in life that we should just completely abandon everything and jump on the new thing the minute that it becomes a new thing, right? But then there's the other extreme, right? The other extreme says anything new is bad, anything old is good. And that's not necessarily true either, right? Um, Sometimes it comes out of a mindset to preserve a way of life, right? So the people that made wheels for horse carts or who made the horse carts when the automobile became a thing, lost a lot of business, right? So they have a vested interest in keeping things the way that they were. Were they successful? No. Mm, What does that look like when it comes to our church? Usually it involves looking at what other churches are doing and saying, well, we need to do that because other churches are doing that, right? So uh, an example might be, uh, something like a bus ministry, right? I'm not saying a bus ministry is in and of itself an evil thing, right? <clears throat> but if we look back on the trajectory of bus ministries, bus ministries are to conservative churches what a coffee bar is to a contemporary church. In other words, we can wear suits and ties and bust children in because we want lots of people in the building, or we can create an environment that lots of people feel comfortable in and get them into the building. Both of them are the same thing, played out in slightly different ways. Is it wrong to have coffee in the lobby? No. But if your reason for doing it is to sort of like bribe people to come, what's going to happen if you stop offering coffee or it's not the kind that they like? They're not going to come, Right. And if you bus kids in and they don't actually have an encounter with Jesus, what's going to happen when they get older and the bus doesn't come pick them up anymore? They're not going to be in church, right? So my point is to say, when we say, how are we going to do ministry? It's easy for us to say, how does everybody else do ministry? And what we should say is, okay, we acknowledge this is how other people are doing ministry. What does the Bible actually require of us, right? Does the Bible require of us to have Sunday school? No. If people are used to coming near the Sunday school hour and it's another opportunity for us to open the Bible and look at it, I'm not going to say, well, I, I don't feel like coming, so we're not going to do it. But should we look at another church that doesn't do Sunday school or only has a Sunday service and say, well, they have less services than us, so they're only 50% as committed to God? No, but that's the way we tend to think about these kinds of things, Right? The traditions should be upheld to the degree they correlate to what God actually calls us to do. The traditions should not be upheld for the sake of traditions. they shouldn't be abolished for the sake of novelty. The question is, are we following Jesus, and what is the the what is the most direct path to accomplishing the things that Jesus has called us to accomplish, right? Let me give one more other comment about the way of doing things. A lot of ways of doing things have been oriented around find a friend, bring them to church, right? And I've had conversations with several of you that invited friends recently, and that's hugely encouraging. I'm not saying don't do that, right? But practical reality is the long-term goal is not find a friend, bring them to church, end of story, right? Because the goal is not to get people to come to a place. The goal is for people to meet Jesus, right? People can meet Jesus in your living room just as well as they can in this auditorium, right? But are people meeting Jesus through the ministry that we're having with them? That's the goal, right? So do a Bible study at your work. Have people over to your house. Go do a hobby with someone that gives you an opportunity to witness to them. Whatever it is that you need to do, go go join a... Uh, a thing, uh, go to the park and let your kids play there and talk to the other parents. Like there's lots of ways that we can connect with people that don't necessitate us um, bringing them into the facility, right? Now, again, to the point that it's not bad to bring them into the facility, that's why we have the inco cards in the back, right? Because sometimes people are used to this sort of conversation with church people, hey, do you go to church? No, I don't go to church. Hey, would you like to come to my church? No, I don't really want to go to your church. Don't let it stop there. Go from the church conversation, which is sometimes an easy end. Hey, I go to this church. We'd love to invite you. I don't really want to go. Well, let me ask you something. Do you have a relationship with God? Because as much as we'd love to have you come to our church, the goal is not that you come to our church or this church that we know. The goal is that you have a relationship with God. Because in the long run, that's the thing that's going to connect them with God's people, not just them setting foot in this building right so are we doing things in a way that accomplishes God's purposes in the world right are we seeing people take the first step toward being disciples eventually getting the point where they gather with us or other people that we introduce them to and they're studying God's word hopefully here maybe somewhere else but that's like step two or three down the road right We want to skip all those other steps, get them here, you hope that I present the gospel clearly, they get saved, the old model was we get them to walk the aisle, you walk the aisle, you have a feeling, you're like, I've committed to this now, I got, sometimes it can just be a feeling and there's nothing to it, right? So. Invite people to church. Don't hear me say, don't invite people to church. Invite people to church, right? But don't be disappointed or if they say no, don't let the conversation stop there, right? You're like, but, but what can we do besides invite people to church? Jesus went to where the people were. He went to Levi's house. He went out in the marketplace. He went to the synagogue. He went to all these different places. So how are we going to connect with people and and do it in a way that maybe another church or another Christian might be like, I don't know what you're doing, because that's not the way we do things. And our goal is, some of us have this tendency, we want to do that because we like to be the person that's going against what everybody else That's not what I'm saying. My point is to say, let's not be so stuck in just sort of like patterns that we're familiar with, that we don't stop and say, all right, what is really the goal? How are we accomplishing the goal even if it's not the expected thing. Last point. Jesus showed his authority over the Sabbath. He permitted his disciples to eat grain on the Sabbath. They're passing through the grain fields. They began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. One of the other um, Gospels, it says they're picking the heads, they're rubbing them between their fingers, and then they're you know, taking the grain out and eating it. It seems like the Pharisees were trying to make this kind of a point. They're doing work on the Sabbath, right? They're harvesting on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a day of resting. It's not a day to gather grain. Jesus says um, they're hungry. It's okay for them to eat. Right? That's his response. Have you never read what David did when he was in need and he his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest, and he gave it to those who were with him. You guys respect David, right? Well-known king, walked with God. You know who he is, right? You've heard about him in all the stories. Are you mad at David because he did this thing that's basically parallel and even less significant than what my disciples are doing? Jesus says, look the point of the Sabbath was not to follow it so rigorously or to follow all these extra rules about it that it puts you in a position of saying, well as long as the rule is followed, we don't care if people starve. Or Maybe starve is too dramatic of a way to put it. We don't care if people are hungry. Let them be hungry. Follow the rule. That was the attitude of the Pharisees. Now, they had added a whole lot of things to the Sabbath. You know, Jesus said, or God said through Moses, rather, don't do work on the Sabbath. It's a day of rest, time with family, time with God, right? They said, all right, let's count steps. Work is, I forget the number, 82 steps is work, 79 steps is not work. God, I don't think, ever spells things out that specifically because he knows our tendency to get hung up on things and say, well, here's the situation. I can, we've had this conversation with the kids. I'm not picking on you I just because I do this too, right? Yesterday morning we had bacon, right? Right? the rules mindset says how many pieces of bacon are there, everyone will get the same amount of bacon, and if we don't, the rule has been violated, right? Maybe for you it's not bacon, maybe it's cake, maybe it's fruit, I don't know, whatever your thing is. If you feel like so-and-so is getting more of it than you, you think that's not fair. Go back to the example of manna as the Sabbath is being instituted. What were they supposed to do? Gather each according to his need, right? Not the same amount, but according to what was needed, right? So God's concern for the Sabbath was, I'm going to provide for your need, and I want you to focus on time with me. Who are the disciples with? Jesus. He's the point of the Sabbath there's a sense in which almost nothing they did could violate the Sabbath because they're with the one who's the point of the Sabbath. Unless they're doing something that's clearly sinful, right? But all of these extra things the Pharisees had added on, those weren't violating the Sabbath, those weren't drawing them away from walking with Jesus because they're literally right there spending time with them. So for them to say, hey, we're really hungry, I mean, there are a group of guys walking a lot, right? You're going to get hungry. Some of you are hungry right now, and we haven't been walking anywhere, right? If I said, the point of church, now, Baptists don't usually have a problem with this. This may be more another denomination thing. The point of church is no food, only the Bible. I don't care that you're hungry. I don't care that you're distracted because you're hungry. We're going to do this, and we're going to go for another 35 minutes, and I don't care that you're hungry. For one, I'm probably rambling at that point. And for two, that's like the attitude the Pharisees had. Like the, the expression of religiosity is the important thing. We don't care about what God's intent was when he gave the law. Jesus takes it a step further in the next example. He goes into the synagogue. It's the Sabbath. There's a man with a withered hand. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. Which sort of begs the question, did they say, hey, you go to this synagogue? Like, do they know Jesus was going to go to that synagogue? So they sent the guy there and they paid him something? We don't know that. I'm just saying, they're they're, they're in this mindset of trying to trap Jesus, right? So maybe the guy was just there by accident. Maybe someone sent him there to try to get Jesus in trouble. The point is he's there Their attitude is not, what of God's word is going to be read today? We should pay attention to that. Their attitude is not, maybe something amazing will happen for the good of this man. Their attitude was, we hate Jesus. How can we trick him and get him in trouble? Jesus knows what they're thinking. How do we know that he knows what they're thinking? Because he already said he knew what they were thinking in the previous story. Hey, you, come here. Yes, you, with the messed up hand, come here. Okay. Hey, you in the back. You, you're seeing what I'm going to do with him. Here's what I'm going to do with him. I'm going to ask you a question. Which is right to do on the Sabbath? To do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? Pretty obvious question. Killing? and doing harm are not okay, doing good and saving a life are. You got nothing? Okay, your hand is better. Immediately, he stretched it out, his hand was restored. What's the response of the Pharisees? They go out and immediately begin conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. What's true of the Herodians? Quick side note. Not religious, very secular group, didn't really care anything about God, but here are people who claim to follow God, conspiring with people who clearly don't care about God and are living this very secular kind of approach because they're like, I don't care about the fact that we hated you last week, we hate him more. It is possible for us to have this same attitude and to use God's words maliciously, right? Right? So when we've talked about something like church discipline, I've tried to stress every time that we've talked about it, the goal of understanding church discipline biblically and holding each other accountable for things that the Bible says is not to say, like people did to Daniel, like the Pharisees did here, like all of these other examples that we have throughout Scripture, the goal is not to say... Let's find a thing that you're not doing in the list of things you're supposed to be doing so that we can get you kicked out of our group, right? And unfortunately, that's the way that sometimes people have treated something like church discipline, which is a good thing. We've said it's only about the kicking people out part and not about the are we following Jesus part, or we've tried to use it as a tool against people. Here's the bottom line. Church discipline is not a city ordinance, Right? What do I mean by city ordinance? City ordinances basically exist because somebody did something someone else didn't like and they got it added so that if they did it again, they could get them in trouble. There's a small handful that exist for legitimate reasons, but a lot of them exist so that neighbors can tell on each other and that sort of thing. Right? If our attitude toward the Bible is, I'm listening to something that you're saying, let me catch you in saying something wrong so I can be like, hey, that's wrong. Let me watch everything you're doing. Hey, that's not the way we do it. That's not the way we're supposed to use the Bible. That's not the way that we're supposed to use God's word. Jesus reminded the Pharisees that God's law was meant for good, not to entrap God's people. And sometimes it's not even what God has specifically said. Sometimes it's things that we have added to what God has said, and then we take those things and we use them as a basis for evaluating the relationship of other people around us that they have with God, right? So let's take a silly example. At some point, someone decided that churches should have pews, right? Probably the Catholic Church, because that's where a lot of those things started, right? Um, and so people have been used to having pews for centuries in churches. So we're like, pews are Christian, right? And then at some point, there was a church that couldn't afford pews, because let's be honest, pews are expensive and they did chairs, and everybody's like, (gasps) Now, people pay good money for the pews that we have in our church if we can preserve them, great, right? I I don't hate the pews. Some of you might think that, but I don't hate the pews, right? But my point is to say, if we look at a church that has chairs instead of pews, and we're like, they're starting on the path to apostasy, and you're like, no one would say that. People said that sort of thing all the years I was growing up. They don't have a Sunday night service. They don't love Jesus. They don't have pews. I don't know if I would go there. And the list goes on, right? Our goal should not be to use the Bible or things we've added to the Bible to catch other people to then use it as a basis instead of saying God is doing ministry and God is being glorified and good is happening it's easy for us to have a wrong attitude toward those things. If, any of, if you or I ever get to the point that we think God's law prevents us from doing good and showing love to others, or if things that we think are the way to do things prevent us from doing good and showing God's love to others, we've missed the point completely. Especially if that escalates to the point that we are jealous of the good God does through people, We have to take a serious step back and look at our hearts and say, how much am I like the Pharisees in this moment when I'm like, I hope something bad happens to that church. I hope something bad happens to that person because they're doing it the wrong way. Now, going back to my earlier point. We shouldn't change things for the sake of changing things. We shouldn't hop on new tr- new trends and fads because they're new trends and fads. But at the end of the day, God is going to evaluate people according to what he said, not the things that we've come up with. God is going to evaluate other people and judge them by their merits, and he's going to judge us by what we've done, right? And so, again, back to the point I was making at the beginning, to the extent that we feel like it's our job to sort of police or oversee or ensure that other people are following the rules the right way instead of saying let's do ministry and they're doing ministry slightly differently but people are trusting Jesus and it's not just an empty sort of thing. I'll give you an example of this. There was um, a description of um, an expectation of a revival going on right at the college campus what, three months ago? Six, sometime last year, right? I don't know how many people spent a whole bunch of time arguing this can't be real, right? I really think in situations like that, if we're not there observing it, our attitude should kind of be like what Gamaliel said, which is, if it's not from God, it's going to fizzle out, Right? So to the extent, let's say someone spent 10 hours arguing about whether that was real. And they didn't spend those 10 hours talking to people around them about Jesus. I think there's probably a case to be made a good portion of those 10 hours were wasted, right? This can apply to things like 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 books and speakers. Like in one of our Wednesday night discussions, we had the conversation about, you know, should I should I listen to this speaker? Or should I read this book? Like, how do we evaluate all that, right? So what do we have on the book rack in the back? We have a thing that says, we don't agree with everything every person said in every book, right? That's our disclaimer. And the reality is, you're not going to agree with everything every person says or writes, right? There's maybe a degree to which it's not helpful to do when you disagree with 80% of what they say or do. But um, if you disagree with like, a tenth of what they say or do, maybe there's still profit to be had and you can learn from that person, right? But in the end, sometimes it's really easy for us to get stuck on the person, right, instead of on God. So let's just give you an example. Um, my grandma knew, knows personally both David Jeremiah and John MacArthur, right? Should we have a fight? About which one of them is better? Should we say, you know, I'm the people over here that like this guy. I'm the people over here that like that guy. They they have very different styles of preaching and writing. Maybe one person benefits from this person. One per- person benefits from that person. My point is just to say it's easy for us to get hung up on the evaluation thing, right? And yes. We need discernment. We shouldn't be naive. We shouldn't be blind to things. But if we get too focused on the discernment, the evaluation, the whatever, or even on the people themselves instead of coming back to Jesus, we are either distracted or potentially sinning because we're trying to do God's job when it's his job to do. So to sum up all of these things, when you see God working, is your default response to question what is happening or to rejoice as his people did? I'm not saying there isn't a place for both of those things, right? But I think if our default response is to question everything instead of to rejoice and then continue to look through it, we might have the wrong heart attitude. When you see God working among people who don't meet your expectations, do you welcome those people? Do you go bring them to follow Jesus? Or do you distance yourself and reject their relationship with God even as you proudly trust in your own? That's what the Pharisees and the scribes were doing. When you see God working apart from traditions that seem like they must be in the Bible because they're all that you've ever known, do you cling to those traditions? Or do you search out what God has said to get back to the basics of following him, love God with all of who you are, and love your neighbor as yourself? I'm not saying that Everyone struggles with this, but I think all of us struggle with this at one point or another, and that is, are we following Jesus, or are we arguing with or about him instead? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these truths from your word. I pray that you would help us to really wrestle with them, that we would be walking with you, that we would be loving you, that we would not be following ourselves, building our own reputation. Um, seeking our own comfort, all of these things that so often are pitfalls in our walk with you. Help us to search, search after you wholeheartedly and to call those around us to follow you and not us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.